Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I think with the fact that my parents were Holocaust survivors, I definitely find it easy to feel like a victim, especially when something is really unjust, whether you get turned down from a pitch or if someone really did something that was grossly unfair, like promises made where they distribute your movie and they don't distribute your movie. It's easy to feel hurt. But what I found is that with gratitude, I can stop that feeling I can put it on pause when I ask myself, what can I be grateful for? The fact that I'm breathing, the fact that I can move my fingers. You know, I also reflect on what my parents went through, which is like, you know, a lot tougher than what I'm going through at the moment. Shit, I got rejected, get over it. And I learned that late in life because it's easy to get like riled up when you know that something is really unjust, socially unjust, especially. But to have that anger and victimhood inside of you, you realize you're only hurting yourself. Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they've identified with as their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. And this week on the show, I am honored to be in conversation with the creator of one of my favorite documentaries that I've seen on Netflix in the last year or two. It's a documentary called Fantastic Fungi which I'm sure many of you also saw, came out in 2019. And I fell in love with both the documentary and with mushrooms after watching it. The creator behind the documentary, his name is Louis Schwartzberg, and he has recently created another documentary about one of my personal favorite subjects, Gratitude. It's called Gratitude Revealed, but you can't watch it on Netflix right now. You have to watch it on a platform that Louis created specifically to spread more positivity in the world. It's a streaming platform called the Louis Channel. And so in this interview, we of course go deep into Louis's backstory of how he became a filmmaker, but even way before that, he was the son of two Holocaust survivors who only knew each other for a couple of weeks before they got married. And the first thing they wanted to do was have kids. And we talked about him growing up in Brooklyn and all of the unlikely events that inspired him to get into documentary filmmaking during college. We talked about how he discovered time-lapse photography And then how he innovated it. He actually became the first person in the world to create time-lapse images on a 35 millimeter camera. This was back in the 1970s. 
We discussed how his earlier projects gave rise to the documentary Fantastic Fungi, which was about 15 years in the making, and why he decided to distribute that documentary himself and then how he did it. He details the strategy that he used to spread the word about it. And it's, it was fascinating. And he talked about why community was one of his most important marketing tools. We also discussed which learnings he applied from Fantastic Fungi to Gratitude Revealed and why he's so excited about making the invisible visible. And there were just a lot of gems during this conversation. So much wisdom from literally decades of experience in the front lines of creating something beautiful. So if you're into documentary films or if you're a nature lover or if you could just use a little bit more gratitude in your life, I think you're going to get a ton of value from listening to this conversation. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Here is my conversation with creator extraordinaire Louis Schwartzberg. Louis, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. I'm super excited about diving into your backstory and your work and just enlightening my audience on what you've been excited about lately. Great to be here with you. I like to start my conversations off talking about the early days. and You have a very, very fascinating backstory. I guess we can start with your parents and their backstory, because I've never heard that before, like someone surviving Auschwitz for six, was it six years or eight years or something? Your mother? Five, five years. Yeah. So I'm sure happy to start there. I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn and my parents were Holocaust survivors, which was really unique because I grew up and Yiddish was my really my first language. But given the fact that they had gone through one of the most horrific experiences of anybody in history, I love the fact that they also had a lot of joy, love, and hope in their life. And so they appreciated like all the little things. I mean, for them having that little apartment in Brooklyn, a roof over your head, you know, food on the table, a steady job, the miracle of having, being able to have children, given the soup that my mom was given to make her sterile, all these things they were like extraordinarily grateful for. Like we never went on vacation they were just happy to be home. So that really imbued in me a couple of things, appreciating the little things in life and also being grateful for all the little things that come across your way. And also, I think it's why I love to tell stories of people who overcome adversity, but have a lot of joy and hope in their lives, people that are resilient. Those are the stories I love to tell. So I'm sure you're familiar with Man's Search for Meaning, right? Victor Frankl. He quotes Nietzsche in saying that a person who has a why can survive almost anything. And I'm just wondering, did your mom ever reveal how she survived five years in Auschwitz? Like, what did she do? What was her philosophy? I think that, you know, her way to like fight back was to bear witness, to be able to survive and tell the story. And I think that's what gave her the stamina to persevere. Because think about it, that's the only weapon you had. So the tattoo on her forearm, it was something that she was proud to talk about. She actually went to like a lot of schools, talked about her experience, and everybody was like fascinated about the tattoo and the number. She had a very low number because she was one of the earlier people that were brought into Auschwitz. 
Yeah, she just had that attitude, like, I'm going to show them by telling my truth. And I think that's true. You probably know anyone who's involved in the struggle, in a movement, civil rights movement, right? <laughs> I mean, the only way to fight back is to tell your story mm-hmm. and to share the brutality that may have been you know, put upon you that people don't know about. Like, what happened when they threw you in jail? And Martin Luther King is a good example of that, that beautiful letter that he wrote when they, they threw him in jail talking about freedom and democracy. So telling your story is the most powerful way to fight back. When you were growing up with your sister, having parents who survived all of that, I know you said they were hopeful, but did they echo any specific ideologies or philosophies to you and your sister, like things that you remembered from growing up, like you have to work hard or you have to be present or appreciate the little things, like anything like that when you, were, when you guys were kids? Not, no, not really. There was nothing that they actually messaged in that way. However, indirectly they did, because what happened is I became the parent to them because they, they'd been damaged. They suffered. They were immigrants. I'm the one that like would really kind of help them understand the customs told them, what is a PTA meeting? (laughs) You know, I mean, it came from, let's say, my mom came from a small town in Poland, let's say growing up in 1930, 1940. And also they just even socially, they didn't know anything about being a teenager, being rebellious, dating, because they were ripped out of that world when they were like 15, 16 years old, you know, and went into a war and had to survive. So, there were a lot of things that they didn't go through. And then I realized, looking back, I definitely was the parent. Plus, I had to be a good boy. I couldn't, like, inflict any, you know, drama or trauma on them, knowing what they went through. So it kind of forced me and my sister to really kind of toe the line. You ended up at UCLA in the film program. Why? What was your idea of success as an adult? And why did you choose that path? When I went to UCLA, I, I entered as a history poli-sci major, and I wanted to really make the world a better place, heal the world. Because when you grow up knowing that your parents and then you know all of their friends were also survivors growing up in San Diego, and all my friends had parents who were survivors, obviously you want to make the world a better place and fight for social justice. And... What happened as soon as you know I got to UCLA, there was the anti-war protests were going on, and I quickly learned photography. I had to take a, f- a photography class. We didn't have like iPhones back then. I mean, the only people that did photography were like, remember wedding photographers? You may not remember, but wedding yeah. photographers and hobbyists, and you know maybe a, a journalist. So, anyways, I quickly learned photography. And I documented the protests, especially the police brutality, you know, like watching, you know, these cops beat up on women as well. And it was like, for me, symbolic of the same thing my parents did. You had to kind of tell your story, you know, record the event in order to share it. And so I did these photo essays, which I submitted to my poli-sci class, which was a lot easier than writing a paper. And I found my voice. I fell in love with it. And from filming those, you know, protests, but then I, I fell in love with filming nature. And that took me on a whole other mind expanding journey. 
You mentioned Dr. King earlier, and there's this story about how he first started using children in the protests because he wanted the imagery of children being hosed down and attacked mm-hmm. by dogs to circulate the globe because he knew that would bring more sympathy to the movement. So they, they had a very keen understanding of the power of images being able to take the message even further than if they were just people were just reading about it. And I watched your TED talk about you taking those initial photographs and the first pictures you had were pictures of people who were bloodied and who had been right. beaten. So how did you know the impact of that? I mean, I know you turned it into your class and everything, but how did it really connect with you, the impact of those images and bringing awareness to what was going on? Well, because pretty early on, even back then, you saw that the newspapers didn't report the facts. You know, mm. there was a protest and they'd say, oh, you know, there were like 500 people that showed up. And to me, it was like 5,000 people. And so you had to have the documentation, the photographs to prove that not only was the crowd bigger, but that the police were beating up on people just for expressing their First Amendment rights of freedom of speech and the right to gather. So right then and there, it was really clear that imagery is a tool of propaganda and you know, mass media and whoever controls media, they always have their own agenda. And you want to be able to share the truth. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Talk about your transition from social justice photography to nature photography. I know you you sure. moved to Northern California or something like that. Yeah, so when I graduated UCLA, you know, fell in love obviously with filming nature. Nature was my greatest teacher. Mother Nature, I mean, taught me everything about color, composition, lighting. At UCLA at the time, the film department was really just getting started, and really they didn't teach you anything. They had these like tenured professors who had made one movie in the anthropology department, but they had, they didn't know how to thread a camera. They didn't know anything. So basically I had to learn everything on my own, which was fine. So my roommate 
he went to Northern California and found this piece of property. And then I went up there to help him one summer. And I ended up staying for two and a half years. <laughs> and that was part of the back to the land movement, which I'm really learning is happening now with young people, which I didn't realize because everything goes in cycles. But you know, I went up there, we had no phone, no television, nothing. And it was really interesting because we were, quote unquote, the hippies. And there were no young people that were living up there at the time because all the young people had left those rural areas. We went to San Francisco and to figure out how to make money because they'd already like cut down the trees. Sheep ranching was like, you know, happening, kind of died. There was no way to make a living. But these young hippies that graduated from Berkeley and UCLA and NYU, you know, people with PhDs were clueless. Like, how do you use a chainsaw? How do you dig a well? How do you build a garden? How do you build a house? How do you use a hammer? We were really clueless. And the old timers, which you could fondly refer to as maybe rednecks, were really our allies. And we bonded, which was really beautiful. Something people don't realize because we were mutually enabling each other. They taught us the ropes. And, you know, we were planting food and growing organic food and definitely cannabis was starting to be grown and that was bringing you know income into the small town so people were buying you know farming equipment and groceries and spending money at the cafe and and there was an economy that grew out of the fact that and at that point it was very innocent and really beautiful i mean somebody would grow 10 or 12 plants in the middle of their garden it wasn't like a big industrial money-making machine. It was just a way to make some extra dough, you know, yeah. and to be able to cover your costs. And, you know, there were little babies that you know running around in these little fields with marijuana plants and tomato plants and broccoli and everything. And then, unfortunately, you know, down the road, four or five years later, it got a little bit weird because when the value of these plants became so expensive, for the first time we had sensimia, not Mexican weed, it attracted the opportunity for people to rip you off and to steal. And then you had this dilemma. What are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to have a gun? You know, what if someone comes and steals your plants, which you've been growing for six or seven months, you know, and each plant's about $2,000. So yeah, it got a little bit strange after a while, but in the beginning, it was so beautiful. It was so innocent. It was so pure. And that's when I started to like film time-lapse I got these old 35 millimeter cameras, you know, a movie camera, even back then to buy one 35 millimeter, which is what I wanted to do. Cause it's high resolution. It was about 120 grand, $150,000. There were only two or three manufacturers, Panavision. You could only lease a camera. You couldn't buy a camera. And obviously I had to buy one if I was going to like, you know, be living far away from Hollywood and wanted to use it every day. So I had these old cameras were built in the 30s, which had the same quality of the movement where imagery is steady. And I retrofitted them with still camera lenses. And there was a guy up there named Ron Wickersham who built electric guitars for the Grateful Dead. So he built a battery motor that I could take these cameras outside and shoot animation because animation was always done, you know, indoors, like, you know, cartoons with cells. Disney type animation. And they had these big motors, literally this big with, you know, 
an AC cord that you have to plug into a wall. And so I kind of bridged fine art photography to motion picture photography and time lapses in the middle. And no one had done that before. And what's amazing now is guess what? There's a time lapse app on your iPhone. So I kind of brought that form of storytelling into the visual vocabulary. So you were literally the guy that innovated the time-lapse photography. Well, it had been done in 16 millimeter earlier uh-huh. on, but primarily okay. like in the scientific studio where they would have a plant with a grid behind it and uh-huh. they would be able to show, guess what? The plant moves and it gets bigger, but it had never been used as a form of artistic or even normal communication. It was only a tool for scientific measurement. So you went to Ron and said, this is what I want to do. How did you yeah. know Ron could help you with this, first of all? And then secondly... Well, because, because he was a genius. He, he Back in the day, there were these companies called Ampex. They made tape recorders. Mm-hmm. And so he was an electronic genius in that regard. And he was making most amazing electric guitars for the Grateful Dead. You was know, he one you know, of your like weed buddies or something? How did you even know this guy? Yeah, yeah, well... My good buddy who lived up the ridge, his name was Richie Peckner, was a roadie for the Grateful Dead. And he knew Ron, because who lived in Sebastopol, and Ron Wickersham you know, made guitars and electric equipment, electric guitars, and was one of these guys that could just invent anything and build anything. And I told him my problem, I don't have a long enough extension cord to take me out into the woods. So he helped me build a motor that ran on flashlight batteries. You know, it's interesting, like 25 years later, a guy named Dan Norris built a DC powered stop motion motor mm-hmm. and for sale. And guess what? He got the Academy Award for technical achievement. Did you guys, so, you and Ron patent this contraption that he created? The generator? No, uh, no, because we just, it was just a one-off, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dan Norris, you know, built them for sale you know, mm-hmm. and made them available for other filmmakers and people to buy or rent, whatever. But mm-hmm. it got a, it got an Academy Award. But I've awesome. done it, yeah, done 25 years earlier. And, and But the beautiful thing beyond the technique is that I was able to spend a lot of time filming beauty, things that had been captured before, which really filled my sense of wonder. How did you solve yeah. the film problem with the time lapse? It's going to run out of film at some point. Because in time-lapse, you shoot very slowly. Like you shoot one frame every five seconds, maybe one frame every minute. To normal Got it. Filming, so it's normal like stop filming. motion then, basically. It's, yeah, it's stop motion. Normal. Every, yeah. Right. So normal filming is 24 frames per second, you know, mm-hmm. going through the camera. So it takes a long time to shoot a roll of film. A roll of film is 400 feet, which is four minutes. Mm-hmm. That roll of film back then cost me, it was roughly, it was a hundred bucks a minute for film development, processing, and getting a print off that negative. A hundred dollars a minute. Today, that sounds expensive. Imagine mm-hmm. me with no money living you know, <laughs> off the grid in Elk and Mendocino County. That was just a lot of money. But I could afford one roll of film. It could take me a couple of months to shoot that roll of film which was great. 
because I was shooting 35 millimeter, which back then the only people who shot 35 millimeter movie film were commercials and feature films. 16 millimeter was educational, you know, and my inspiration with the fine art photographers like Ansel Adams and Edward Weston, who shot like, you know, four by five, eight by 10 negatives, big negatives. So for me, the bigger the negative, the better. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I'm super grateful because guess what? That stuff that I shot back in 1970, I can scan it at 4K and I've used it in my current work. The series that I launched on Netflix called Moving Art, which was like a major breakthrough when Netflix claimed they could stream 4K and they showed it at the Consumer Electronics Show about six years ago. Everybody like went, wow, and their jaws dropped. How incredible. That was stuff that was shot in 1970. Nobody mm-hmm. knew. So for me, shooting high resolution has always been standard mm-hmm. because formats change all the time. Delivery systems change all the time. So the more resolution, the better. But getting back to elk for a moment, it filled my sense of wonder. But the other thing, economics. I mean, if it took me a month or two to shoot a roll of film, that worked for me. So I was able to shoot film. It didn't cost me a ton of money. You know, the camera that I bought was like $2,000, this old camera that was not reflex that had to be modified. And that became, which is really amazing light, that was the birth of really the stock footage industry because The Secret Life of Plants was a film that was happening at the time. And they want to, you know, use my shots and me being an artist. I'm going, I'm not going to give you my shots. I will license it to you. I'll make a copy of it for you to use. And back then, the only people who, the only companies that did that was archival newsreel companies or outtakes from you know movies that was all scratched and stuff. There was nothing. There was no contemporary high quality imagery that you could license. Of course, now there's like Shutterstock and Getty and all these you know incredible outlets that make it available to anybody. You're a young guy and you're being scrappy about all of this. What gave you the foresight to know that I should license these images instead of just giving? Because I'm sure you needed the money or you could have used the money at the time. Well, because I always had a desire to be an independent filmmaker and to be able to tell my own story. That was like primary, more than the business entrepreneur that said, oh, I know in the future, this is all going to be super valuable. There was a combination of both, but definitely the artistic idea that if you create something, you own it. Pretty simple. And actually, back then, one of the things you learned when you were like, you know, negotiating, like my thesis film was acquired by United Artists. And that was like a miracle I was able to do that. They bought my movie for $2,000 with all rights of perpetuity throughout the universe. But the key, <laughs> if you reincarnate, you still have to. Well, that's the agreement that they give you. It's a standard <laughs> agreement. But the right. key that you always have to worry about is who owns the negative? Because that was like possession. You know, it was all about who controlled the negative. And if you ever got into a dispute, anyone back then, like with producers or investors or people that, you know, you owe money or they owe you money, whoever owned, whoever held the negative had, had the upper hand. And so this idea was always ingrained in me that holding on to the negative was paramount. You know, I could make a copy of it, make a print of it. That's how movies were released back in the day. Mm. 
still, you know, there's, there's always a master and then you make a copy, even in digital. So that was always key. It was like possession is nine tenths of the law. So yeah, I always believed in doing that. But what happened, which was really amazing after I was up in Elk and lived that lifestyle, which was great for a while, but filmmaking is a team effort. And, you know, I was doing everything myself, which is good. I always was proud of the fact that I knew how to edit, shoot, sound, you know, do everything. I would write letters to United Artists to see if they would want to buy my next short movie that had to be mailed. (laughs) But after Secret Life of Plants, which took me to Calcutta, you know, I had never left the country. I never Mm -hmm. could afford to travel. Mm -hmm. I went from Elk and Mendocino to LA to get my hair cut, got my passport, and then went straight to Calcutta to shoot these sequences. And that was right after the incredible floods they had in, in Bangladesh. And going to Calcutta in India back in the you know 70s, there's a ton of poverty. It's not like the way it is today. High tech, you know, type of, you know, there were beggars everywhere in the street. I filmed the sequences I needed to film, but when I came back, I realized LA isn't quite as hectic as I thought it was after being in Calcutta, 25 <laughs> million people in poverty, you know, which is a whole different world. So I came back to LA and then I showed people this gorgeous footage I had. I showed the networks, I showed studios, they went, oh, oh my God, it's so beautiful. We've never seen anything like that. But we don't know what to do with it because you can't tell a story without conflict. And in my brain, I went, that's bullshit. Like, are you kidding me? I mean, the story of nature is about symbiosis, about relationships, about regeneration, right? Cooperation, harmony. And so the people that got what I was doing were the ad agencies because they realized it was eye candy. And if you can grab someone's consciousness in a second, that's the goal, right? So images that are beautiful, they, you know, it's an emotional reaction. You can either trigger people with fear or you trigger them with beauty. And so they started to license my work. I was in LA, I was doing, you know, visual effects. I worked on Smooth Criminal with Michael Jackson. I did music videos as a DP cameraman director. But what took off, was my licensing business because when digital occurred and there was like a digital backlot, long story short, basically in 1996, I had a hundred employees, 12 foreign offices and Getty images bought my company. And we were the cornerstone of the first motion library to be acquired by Getty images, which became a multi-billion dollar industry. So you wish you'd ask for more money. Back when you sold it to them. (laughs) Well, the the problem, like, was I never knew that selling your company is a goal. I was clueless about all that. I just thought you build a company, you reinvest into your company, you know, you pay all your employees, you grow, you do what you want to do. But the digital revolution meant that this was like the last piece of IP that you could purchase that had value. The Japanese had bought all the record companies. Then they bought the studios. And then guys like Mark Getty, Bill Gates realized that the last piece of IP that was available were these stock still and stock motion libraries. And that became kind of the last acquisition that you could like, you know, acquire. 
So when you first looked at these time-lapse images, what did you see that you did, you had, it would shock you that you had no idea about? And did you already know about the secret life of plants? Not the book that turned into the documentary, but just how interconnected everything was in nature. That's a great question. I mean, I feel that, well, first of all, when I saw the results, I definitely was shocked and not shocked. I was filled with wonder Mm -hmm. because to be honest, I thought I was like looking into the face of God to be able to see the perspective from a flower's point of view. Oh my God. You know, that's like something you can't imagine. You can't see. You can tell people that, oh, plants are living in a different metabolic rate. They're sentient. But you can't prove it. But if you can show it to people, they're like, wow, there it is. Guess what? Not only are they opening and closing to the light, they dance, they have grace, they have beauty. And then you have to ask your question. You ask the question, well, why are they beautiful when nobody can see that? But other flowers can see it, I guess. And certainly pollinators can see it, which is how we get our healthy food. So number one, that's the thing that turned me on initially. What was the second part of your question? Did you know about the secret life of plants? Did you know about that whole world, the inner world of nature, the flora and the fauna talking to each other? Actually, I didn't. And, you know, the book was out there. I had never read the book. But then I got involved in working on that movie, which, by the way, Stevie Wonder did the score for. Nice. And I actually spoke to him about six months ago for the very first time in my life. I was sitting, I was having this, like, meeting in Santa Barbara, and one of the people there used to be his manager, you know, and I told him, oh, I worked on The Secret Life of Plants. And, you know, when I found out that he was Stevie's manager, you know, he goes, he goes, hey, hold on. And he whips out his cell phone and goes, ding, 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 ding. And goes, hey, Doc, I got the guy here to, that shot the flowers in The Secret Life of Plants. And he throws me the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and there I am talking to Stevie Wonder, which was like really a surprise. But I did not know that stuff. Mm. The plants communicate to each other. And what's interesting is that everybody made fun of it. They'd like, yeah, plants don't talk to each other. And, and of course, when I did Fantastic Fungi, we had scientific evidence that Mother Tree takes care of its babies, that plants do talk to each other, that they share nutrients, they share information, that, that a forest is a community, you know, where ecosystems flourish without greed. Yeah, all that stuff took me a while to learn. And I'm not someone who reads a lot. I'm someone that observes a lot visually. And so I don't do a lot of scientific research reading because I don't know, I just love learning it from real experience. So even before Fantastic Fungi, you had been collecting these clips of people talking about gratitude. You kept bringing yeah. up this subject of gratitude. Why gratitude when you were doing this time lapse stuff with nature? How did that tie in? Well, it ties in, you know, because earlier we talked about the fact with my parents, you know, and and that background, being grateful for the little things in life. But then you think about the fact that when I went and lived in Northern California, we had to be frugal. We had Mm -hmm. to be resourceful. All the little things mattered. If someone had a barn that was falling apart, then you could like, you know, get that wood and recycle it. If you found ways to go to a neighbor and, and harvest some of the apples from a orchard that had more, you know, too many apples for them to eat. I mean, we were being resourceful, sharing firewood, sharing food. That's how you survived. 
And it was actually beautiful. It wasn't like we were like struggling or we were like, it was actually, you know, I think about it like when you go to an expensive resort nowadays, like that's out there, like in Big Sur or in Sonoma, and you're spending $2,000 a night to stay in this like beautiful wooded area and you're eating organic food and doing yoga, probably with you. That's like a high class experience. I was living that. I was every, that was Tuesday for you. Yeah. My rent was 150 bucks a month. I would walk down to the Creek every day and out to the ocean. All the food was organic because we were sharing food with all my neighbors and all my friends. I lived on the coast. It's foggy. I grew lettuce. They were up the ridge three miles. It's hot and sunny. They were growing broccoli and vegetables. We would get together for potluck. I mean, it was we were living a high-class lifestyle with very little money. And now it's kind of it kills me when I go to these, yeah, you know, we're both, I'm sure, invited to go to these conferences that are at these resorts, right? And they're giving me a small plate of food with like salad and nasturtium and all that stuff. I'm going, shit, that's what I ate all the time, you know? And it didn't cost me a ton of money to do it. <laughs> so I just wanted to say that what happened, you know, things happen in cycles. But back in the 70s, people made a lot of fun at the hippies looking back. We were right about everything with the hindsight. We were right about the fact that the Vietnam War was immoral unethical and a giant tragedy. We were right about the fact that pesticides were killing us. We were right about the fact of racial inequality. We were right about gender issues. We were right about psychedelics being a useful tool. We were right about everything. And that was like Earth Day in 1970. Here it is 53 years later, Earth Day's tomorrow. And it's like, we were right about all that stuff. And we're still trying to, like, we haven't really figured it out. You know, there's been some progress, but consciousness and behavior hasn't really shifted. And we need, like, I think a more positive story. I think the messaging of, of saying that we're doomed and that we're facing a mass extinction makes people feel like they can't do anything about it. So being positive about being grateful for the little guys, for the bees, the bats, the hummingbirds, the fungi, for the healthy food we need to eat. That, I believe, is the way you instill hope and courage. So you need gratitude to fight the good fight. Because what studies have proven, the people that practice gratitude are more resilient. And then the same thing happens in nature. I, I observe plants that are resilient. I look at a blade of grass that grows in a crack in the sidewalk, and I like honor it, man, you know? I go, that is really, that's not only is it resilient, that's a tough critter that can have that kind of energy. So gratitude creates resilience. Resilience makes you appreciate and protect what you love. So you've been on gratitude for a while, and I don't know if you would characterize fantastic fungi as being your your one of your biggest breakout successes where people around you know the globe literally yeah. talked about it and spread the word and and that's how I originally found out about it as well what do you attribute that to that success of fantastic fungi what surprised well, you about that yeah well a couple of things i think 
the timing was perfect. I started that film 15 years before it got released in late 2019. So the psychedelic renaissance was just beginning to happen, and people were finally comfortable to talk about psychedelics, and research was starting to kick in again. But I'll tell you what the main reason is, I think, or in conjunction with that, is that I self-distributed the movie. A lot of times, and I'm sure you hear a lot of stories from filmmakers, how, you know, the studios didn't do what they promised to do. And, you know, Wings, I did a film called Wings of Life, which is about pollinators with Meryl Streep as the voice of the flower, seducing bees, bats, hummingbirds, and butterflies. Extraordinarily beautiful, great score, gorgeous movie. But politics and executive shuffle get in the way. And promises made about how the film would be distributed don't happen. So the timing on that really was unfortunate because the studio chief, Dick Cook at the time, who greenlit the movie got f- and was there for 20 years, got fired a month before the release of my movie. And then the new guy comes to town, the new sheriff. Of course, he wants to like downplay the previous agenda of his predecessor Disney Nature was created a year or two earlier. He killed the label. It was the first time Disney had a label called Disney Nature. And then I'm asking myself, like, shit, it isn't about the money. It's like, come on, universe, what the hell is happening here? I make a film about colony collapse disorder, you know, that the bees are disappearing. If we lose the bees, we lose our our food supply. Because they pollinate flowers. Flowers creates berries, seeds, nuts, vegetables, fruits. So there's been just a lot of situations like that where, you know, the timing was unfortunate because the agenda at a giant corporation shifts. And it it isn't like they're evil. It's just not their priority. You know, they're, they're marketing Marvel. They're marketing, you know, Star Wars. They're marketing you know, mega blockbusters. And then you got this little tiny film about flowers and bees and bats and the Hummer. And it's like, they don't think they're doing the right thing for for shareholder value. That's the word that I get. And then, and even though they go, we love you and we think your film is really important, but I got to worry about the shareholders, which is really a cop-out when you think about it, right, Light? It's Mm -hmm. like, come on. You know, but people that are in those positions tend to be corporate minded and they're protecting their butt and their position. And so you don't do things for the greater good. You do things for the quarterly returns, which is based on what your income will be based on and how you're going to be judged. Short term thinking, which is really the curse of capitalism in our current society. Nobody thinks long term, it's all short term profit. So anyways, that's maybe a long way to answer your question, but that's the reality. So what I did was for the very first time, having gone through all that, and I said, no more heartache for me. I actually went to a cardiologist just to confirm that the pain in my heart was psychosomatic, which was a gift because I didn't want to think that it was physiological, like there was something wrong with me. You know what I mean? If it was psychosomatic, I figured I could like adjust my mind to overcome that. So I decided with Fantastic Fungi, we we're going to, it's a movement. We're going to, I'm going to just grab it and go for it. And we self-distributed. And so I was able to open up in one theater 
in Denver, where they had just decriminalized psilocybin. And we proved the fact that we could fill a theater. We proved the fact that it could run for like 12 weeks. How did you do that, though? How did you get butts and seats in Denver? We got butts and seats without money by reaching out to the Psychedelic Society in Denver. They had just passed that initiative. As a matter of fact, the Psychedelic Decriminalization Initiative got more votes than the mayor did in that election. So there was a community there that was really into it. And after that, it was just really word of mouth. Because once you fill the theater three, four, five nights in a row, and it's a good product, and it blows people away, word of mouth will carry you. I've used PR people before, and I think that's bullshit. PR people are bullshit. Like, you really have to get it involved as the creator. Right. So did you employ any unique tactics or anything like that as, as the creator of this work that helped to reach the top guy in that society and send him a video with the password and then, you know, or any of this well, kind of well, stuff? Well, more than that, Vlad, I showed up. Mm-hmm. I was there, you know, every night doing Q&A and I brought in local leaders talking about recycling, talking about, you know, foraging for fungi, talking about psychedelics. And did giving, you bring Paul in? Well, Paul did not come to Denver, but he came to other cities we did. Yeah. Okay. In Washington mm-hmm. State. But I did it. And I think it was better to bring in the local leaders because when I would leave, they would have the connection to whoever that group was that was either heading psychedelics or foraging, recycling, organic farming. And I was knitting a community together, people that are into spirituality, yoga, healthy food, scientists, bringing all these people together that had overlapping interests. And they were all loving on each other, which was great. So that was the key. And then once you prove you got as you said, you could put butts in seats in Denver, then it's easy to go to Portland and go, we can do the same thing in Portland. Then we go to Vancouver and then we go to like Santa Cruz and we just keep on rolling. And exhibitors are basically real estate people. They're renting you a box and they want to know you can pay the rent. Were you following a playbook or were you creating the playbook for your genre? We were basically creating the playbook. I mean, indie films have done it before, very few. But then people warned me it was going to be a ton of work, a lot of hard work. I mean, I had to show up and do that stuff. I had someone like Kurt Eftekar. He helped me with booking the theaters. And I did have someone help me with the with social media, which is we're able to use right now, which is great. So I did have a team that could help me get the word out. but. Like you said, the PR stuff is BS. You've got to do the work. So every time I go to another city, I kept on thinking, who do I know? I mean, hey, I know this person from EarthDay.org, or I know that person from some other you know organization. And I would say, come on, I need your you know, show up. And I worked it. And during COVID, when it was hard to move around, it's actually kind of a miracle that I could do all of that from my laptop in my dining room that I could like pull all these strings and move all these levers and distribute my movie that way was really remarkable because after we did the theatrical, which we were successful up until March of 2020, then we had to pivot into doing it virtually because of COVID. I couldn't tell people go, go to a movie theater and it was really confusing. 
if you can recall back then, because some states were doing it, some states were not doing it. The last thing ever I wanted to have the karma was to say, oh, go see my movie and somebody dies. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, in Montana or someplace where it's wide open, you know, they mm -hmm. can go do it. So we, we actually invented virtual cinema. So what we did, this is really cool. We told the theaters where the film was booked, show it. You know, they have a big email list. Tell your community that they can watch it online and then we still split 50 50 on the revenue with the theaters and the theaters that i went to are art house theaters they are community-based theaters and then i would like to have a google alert for fantastic fungi and i go oh wow there's a theater in like ohio that had a food bank giveaway with the revenue that was generated from fantastic fungi and I loved this feeling I had where I helped, but didn't help. Indirectly, I helped generate revenue in a place like in Columbus or someplace where that generated revenue in a local community theater that was that struggling at the time of COVID. And they were feeding people. For me, that was like news I was just reading that I was somehow indirectly a catalyst for that. That's beautiful. That to me is like the example of the pollinators. I think when the bee lands on that flower and it's just trying to get like pollen to feed its babies back in the hive, it doesn't know that it's a messenger for reproduction for the flower. I mm. don't think the bee is conscious of that. I think it's just doing what it has to do for it to survive and reproduce and keep its community growing, right? But indirectly, when it goes from flower to flower, it's moving DNA around. And the pollinators weren't doing that. The flowers wouldn't be able to reproduce because they don't have legs. So they got this messenger service called a pollinator to help them reproduce, which is so beautiful. So I love it when goodness happens unknowingly. It's not a quid pro quo. It isn't like, like I'll do this for you and you do this for me. It's more like, I'm going to just give you a gift and do something positive for you. And then miraculously, somehow it, it circles back to me without me being aware of negotiating the, for it. Are you one of the fortunate people who naturally you have a baseline of level of optimism or do you grapple with any sort of anxiety or imposter syndrome or mental health stuff that <laughs> you, have to, you have to fight against in the background while you're out here trying to pitch your movie and, and yeah. get people to get excited about it? I do. I think with the fact that my parents were Holocaust survivors, I definitely find it easy to feel like a victim. Mm -hmm. And especially when something is really unjust, whether you get turned down from a pitch or if someone really did something that was grossly unfair, again, like promises made where they distribute your movie and they don't distribute your movie, it's easy to feel hurt. But what I found is that with gratitude, I can stop that feeling. I can put it on pause when I ask myself, what can I be grateful for? The fact that I'm breathing, the fact that I can move my fingers. You know, I also reflect on what my parents went through, which is like, you know, a lot tougher than what I'm going through at the moment. Shit, I got rejected. Get over it, you know? And I learned that late in life because, like, it's easy to get, like, riled up when you know that something is really unjust, socially unjust, especially, right? But to have that anger and victimhood inside of you, you realize you're only hurting yourself. 
I remember I was in India. I was like filming and I was in this like, you know, funky classroom and there was this chalkboard and I saw this thing on the, on the chalkboard. It said, people did annoy you, control you. Same idea. So now if you're like with the news and these crazy guys that are politicians right now, I have to be vigilant that that's going on because there's anti-Semitism, there's racism, but it's really easy to get sucked in and watching that stuff all day long. And if you do that, you're living in their world. And that's the name of the game we have right now. Like, it's a battle of consciousness. I can grab your consciousness with fear, which is easier than grabbing your consciousness with love and beauty. Because the primal thing is fear. It's the easiest thing to do. If I point a gun at you right now, I know I'll get your attention immediately. And I'll get an adrenaline reaction from you immediately. It takes a lot more effort to make you laugh and cry with art, with storytelling, with beauty. But those are emotions that can combat fear. And we're living in a really tough time right now where you know fear is used by politicians, I'm going to say it by Fox News, <laughs> to keep people locked in fear. That's why we had all those shootings this week of innocent people knocking on the door, going up a driveway. People are watching Fox News all day long, being filled with fear, thinking that like whoever's going to knock on their door, come up their driveway is, you know, out to get them. And so people are really being brainwashed and programmed to be loaded with fear. We have to be vigilant, but I also think what I'm trying to do is combat that because you can't just talk about it. So what I'm trying to do, like with the Louis channel, having a platform where you can go and watch movies and media that's positive. You know, like what world you want to live in. Look at Gandhi. Be the world. Be the change you want to be. You know, if you don't like this culture, throw a better party. It's the only way to fight back. You can't get these people, these politicians or governments or corporate institutions to like change because you're going to give them some argument about morality or or what is ethical. I don't think it works that way. It hasn't worked that way. They don't really have a conscience because it boils down to greed and money, and I don't even want to go there, right? What you can do is create an alternate world that doesn't need those resources, feed your own community with respect, love, kindness, generosity. What we're doing right now, we're skirting the big broadcasters. We're having a conversation digitally across the country to shift consciousness with people. We're doing it. You're doing it. So that's the only way, I think, to combat that. And we can grab people's attention, and attention equals consciousness, then we're shifting behavior. I have a couple more questions about Fantastic Fungi. You had a relationship with Netflix before that, I think I remember reading. What were the metrics that they need to see in order to transition out of the theaters and onto streaming? For the documentary filmmaker out there listening to this, what happened is I distributed the film theatrically first. And then after that, I made it available virtually, digitally on my own Fantastic Fungi platform. After that, I went to Apple and Amazon, where it got distributed on those platforms. Mm -hmm. Last thing I did, that was like you know, VOD, video on demand. Last thing I did is I went to Netflix. And Netflix, I licensed it. I didn't sell it. 
had offered from them in early on to buy the movie. But as we talked about earlier, I'm not into selling my negative and the price was pretty low. And I made a commitment that I wasn't going to like, you know, go down that path anymore where I was going to be potentially disappointed. So besides the film, you know, being good and let's say being successful, the goal is to create a movement. The goal was we built a community. We definitely did build a movement for Fantastic Fungi. I've had so many people, let's say, start top-down business owners go, thanks to your movie, we became successful. People that are selling mushrooms and, you know, not psychedelic mushrooms. I'm talking about healthy mushrooms and, you know, lion's mane, turkey tail, all the things that are good for your body and good for your mind. And then a lot of a lot of people just saying, for the first time, I can have a conversation with my friends, my family, my parents about psychedelics, and they were they were able to understand because again the fear factor that got shoved on people that you know these were drugs like heroin that were going to you know ruin your life and destroy your chromosomes. There's a lot of bias and fear that needed to be overcome. And mm-hmm. so the fact that people could express, which for them might have been the deepest spiritual experience they'd ever had in their life, and they couldn't talk about it for fear of being ostracized or going to jail, that is the equivalent of religious persecution. You have to hide. You can't talk about it. How different is that than people practicing religion in caves? So it was good for people to, to able to get it off their chest, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To be open, to have the conversation. And that's what the film did. It created a conversation, whether I was there physically to facilitate the conversation, or if we did it virtually and I was able to zoom in and trigger it, or people on their own just had the conversation because I would run into strangers and I hear it like almost every other day from people telling me stories how they had a 16-year-old kid who was like screwing up with drugs and alcohol and having taken a mushroom trip, it changed their life, changed his life or her life. Remarkable stories. People who were involved with addiction, people who were suicidal. As a matter of fact, yeah, we just finished a clinical trial here in Santa Monica combining psilocybin with my imagery to treat alcohol addiction. And the results are super positive. The combination is is better than even the psilocybin by itself. You know, watching nature's imagery, rhythms and patterns that makes you feel connected to a grand universe to get you out of your ego in conjunction with the medicine that is, you know, nature's medicine as well, plant medicine, fungal medicine, is uh, it's remarkable. And we're just beginning to, I think, really explore that. It's kind of like a modern version of the secret life of plants. I mean, it's your take on that, essentially. And way, but we, there, there was no mention of psychedelics in the secret life of plants. Mm-hmm. It was more that they were conscious and sentient, who was like the big breakthrough. I think that's a foundational understanding of fantastic fungi. Yes, there's these effects you can have, but still... These things are all talking to each other and they're taking care of each other. And there's a whole society of plants that we don't even realize when you're walking past a plant. I mean, I think about that a lot. Having watched your film, everything is sentient. It's all sentient. 
It's all talking yeah. to each other. And it's fantastic. Yeah. And, yeah. and think about this. If they are talking to each other, which they do primarily through chemistry, right? Mm-hmm. Moving nutrients and, and signaling each other, maybe with bioelectrical impulse. How are they going to talk to you? They don't have language like we do. The majority of life on this planet speaks to each other chemically, right? Mm-hmm. Molecules, mm-hmm. aroma, chemistry. So if they are going to talk to you, the only way they could speak to you is if you ingest them. Mm. And those molecules unlock a receptor in your brain, which gives you a, a taste of the divine. Mm-hmm. You lose your ego to be able to experience how everything is connected. And perhaps they're trying to tell us that we need to live in harmony with nature mm-hmm. and to get our act together and maybe stop destroying species in their own self-interest. In the background, you've been accumulating this footage, like you said, for 15 years. And with Gratitude Revealed, it's kind of the same thing. You have this footage that you've been collecting. You've been a prolific TED speaker speaking about gratitude and your work in nature. How did you decide to do fungi first and then gratitude? Was that a happy accident or? <laughs> well, there's a, you look back and you can kind of look at where that chronology and, and those connections are. Before Fantastic Fungi, I mentioned I did Wings of Life. So mm-hmm. what I'm really trying to do is really unveil the mystery. Like mm-hmm. what is the foundation of life? So Wings of Life is really about the intersection between the animal world and the plant world, you know, pollination. And they're getting it on with each other, but they're not having sex because how can like one kingdom make love to another kingdom? They're not even the same species, but they're enabling each other to prosper and reproduce and grow, which is really remarkable. And we are the beneficiaries of that. We get the fruits and the nuts and the seeds and the vegetables. So I thought, wow, that's the foundation of life. But then wait a minute, what do plants need? They need soil. Where does soil come from? I'll tell you, 98% of people have no idea where soil comes from. Soil comes from fungi breaking down organic matter, rocks and minerals to make soil. And so it was important for me to then take it to the, you know, not to the next level up, but next level down. Again, what is the foundation of life? I make fantastic fungi, which is a journey underground into nature's intelligence to look at these, you know, systems of mycelium, an ecosystem where trees communicate to each other, ecosystems flourish, again, without greed. It's really nature's operating instructions. It's a beautiful blueprint for how we should live our lives as well, a shared economy. But then once you learn all of that, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to integrate that into your life, into your relationship with your friends, your family, your workers, your community, the world. As I look back now, gratitude revealed is a journey into the soul to take that wisdom and figure out how to integrate that, to be able to take these values like generosity and kindness, connection, forgiveness, creativity, courage, love. All these values add up to gratitude, and you know, in my opinion, I'm not a positive psychologist, which is my point of view. But actually, as I look at a lot of self-help books, 
And I just sort of scanned the table of contents. <laughs> All those values are in every self-help book I've ever seen. And self-help books happen to be the number one bestsellers in the nonfiction category. So I think it is a natural evolution. And like I said earlier, growing up with my parents who were frugal, you know, they didn't have much money, but appreciating all the little things, it's also the basis for being an environmentalist. It's being frugal. It's not like, you know, you you turn off the lights, not because it's going to cost you money. You're turning off the light because there's a coal plant on Navajo land that's burning coal and polluting the atmosphere. That's why I turn off the light switch. It's pennies, which I could afford now, but you want to be conscious about the impact you're having. So it's all the same. From a storytelling perspective, how did you tackle that component in the gratitude reveal narrative? Because as you know, Hmm. when we're used to seeing certain stories presented in certain ways, there's got to be an antagonist. I'm not sure there has to be one, but there normally (laughs) is one. There normally is one, yeah. There normally is one, but... That was the first time I put myself in the film. I mean, this is my journey, my point of view. So I'm not, like I said, the authority on gratitude, which I think you can only speak from your own experience. And these are the people I bumped into. The beautiful part is I get to share it with you. I mean, some of the people I bumped into are no longer here. The fact that you can hang out with these people and get their spirit and their wisdom and these are magic moments, by the way. This is like, you know, everybody I bump into aren't really great people or magical or extraordinary. I mean, these are ordinary, extraordinary people that I share in my movie. And the fact that I'm giving you the tip of the iceberg, the creme de la creme, by curating these magic moments and stringing them together like pearls on a string, that's a gift. You have everyone from Deepak to Norman Lear to Alex Gray to Jason Silva. Do you just carry your camera around with you and you go to some conferences <laughs> and, and the two of these guys, Paul Hawken is at the conference and say, hey, let, let me go in your hotel room, and shoot some, ask you questions about gratitude because you, you said you've been accumulating this footage. Yeah. How does that work? The answer is no, I don't do that that way <laughs> because I want high quality recording, but also good lighting. And so... Usually it's a tiny crew, but I'm really aware, you know, everybody comments, oh, like the film is really beautiful, right? Well, that's part of the story. I'm seducing you to fall in love with what you're looking at outside of the words that are being spoken. And gratitude revealed pretty much wall-to-wall words, but it's beautiful. I mean, beautiful music and beautiful imagery. And all these people are beautiful people, you know, but it's important that visually it's beautiful because beauty is, you know, I always say beauty is nature's tool for survival because you protect what you love. If I can make you fall in love with what you're watching, then it's going to go deeper inside your soul. You also mentioned that you have this time lapse that's been going for 40 years. Were you being literal about that? Yes. I have cameras going nonstop for four decades, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because I'm shooting time-lapse, which means I'm shooting on average five seconds of footage per 24 hours, focusing on flowers and plants and mushrooms. So it takes a lot of time, which is something money can't buy, to film 
in you know plant life, fungi in time lapse. So imagine like if I've been shooting for four decades, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as I said, I get roughly two to five seconds per day. How much time-lapse footage do you think I have? Lots. <laughs> make, make a wild guess in terms of, I'll give you a clue, it's in hours, okay? How many hours okay. do I have? Uh, let's see. 40 hours, seven, 24 hours a day for 40 years. 5,000 hours? No, 20,000 hours. 20 hours. How many? 20. 20 hours? Yes. Oh, wow. I've squeezed 40 years into 20 hours. <laughs> okay. Did that blow your mind? <laughs> Is there a certain limit to it, or are you just going to keep going indefinitely? I'm going to keep going. This is like, a, it's like one of those things, like, you know, most consecutive games played in sports. It's not like a giant record, but it's a cool record. I realized only recently, it's, it is a practice. Because actually, I read like in, in a book on blue zones, you've heard about that, where people, of course. Logic, you mm-hmm. know, what is common to the blue zones, when people wake up in the morning, first thing they do is they go in the garden and they check out what opened, what closed. That's what I do. I, I look at my flowers every morning before I even have tea or water. Mm-hmm. And I'm observing, is it, you know, did, it, did the flower open? Is it in frame? Is it in focus? Do I have to set up another shot? And because it takes so long to capture what I'm doing, I don't have a lot of dead time in between. I can't say, oh, well, it failed last night or it opened or it's over. And then tonight I'm going to set up another shot. I immediately set up another shot. I can't waste a single second. It's kind of like a juggling act. I got to keep the ball in the air the whole time, you know? Mm And, and I realize, in a way, it's like a practice, because I don't really have a traditional meditative practice where I do a certain you know physical thing every morning. This is my practice. Mm-hmm. I got to keep the cameras rolling. I got to keep the lighting going. I got to keep the plant happy. I got to keep the subject good. I got to make sure there's enough memory. I got to keep on doing what I need to do in functional consciousness to maintain the fact that I'm recording something, even if I fail. And there is a lot of failure in front of the camera. Because of that, and because it takes a lot of time, I need to keep the ball in the air. I can't drop the ball. You said that you love making the invisible visible. How does that relate to gratitude? How do we make the invisible visible through the lens of gratitude? I think bringing forth what you're grateful for is a way to become present. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it is invisible. Like we, we don't think about all the good things that happened during the day, you know, and it's only natural that we're always putting out that fire and dealing with that emergency or the problem that needs to get fixed because we're hardwired to do that. You know, that's what we do, fix things. So, I think being able to pull out the things that you can be grateful for is one way of making the invisible visible. You know, we don't nurture the good stuff that happens, you know, good news. And my daughter did something really great. And I go, hey, I smile. But then it's like five seconds later, I'm back to like problem solving. So we need to, I think, draw that from inside of us and make those invisible emotions visible. 
Did your parents get to witness any of your success as a filmmaker? They did toward the end. I think my dad was pretty proud. My mom died in the mid-90s, and my dad lived 10 years longer. Yeah, he he was really definitely proud. I don't think they quite understood what I was doing. They were blue-collar workers, and they were always, first question they go, like, are you making a living? (laughs) You know, they don't know what it's like to be a a quote-unquote entrepreneur, a, a, you know, independent filmmaker. So I would say yes, and they were satisfied. That's all they needed to know. Because it seems like a lot of your work is like almost a tribute to their struggle, the things that they went through, and helping other people experience the silver lining of those experiences, but without having to go through all the, the trauma related to those experiences, yeah. or equipping us with you know the tools to navigate challenge and trauma in our life, and having something to reflect back on and saying, Essentially, that if you just walk outside and walk through a park or walk through your backyard, there's beauty everywhere if you're paying attention to it. So when you're creating this or thinking about creating it, who are you thinking about watching this or witnessing it and being transformed? Well, I think I, primarily myself, because mm-hmm. if it's going to turn me on, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to turn you on. And there's really some logic there, because I don't create the beauty. I'm sort of a messenger in terms of recording the beauty. And then the fact that it's beautiful to me and it's beautiful to you means that we're both responding to the rhythms and patterns of nature that touch our soul. I mean, they've done studies about symmetry and all the different things that we agree is beautiful, but none of us went to beauty school. None of us were taught aesthetics of of appreciation. So if it turns me on, and again, it doesn't have to be like a, a beautiful vista or a flower. It could be a crack in the sidewalk. It could be a fire hydrant. It could be graffiti on the wall, right? Whatever grabs my attention and touches me, in truth, it seems to also touch other people. Maybe not everybody, but a lot of people. And I think that's true in almost every art form. You're able to tap into a universal consciousness that turns us on. And we all want to get turned on. We have Disney Plus, we have Paramount Plus, now we have the Louis Channel. Yeah. <laughs> How does that work? Where do people find the Louis Channel? What is the Louis Channel? What kind of content? <laughs> is it all your content? Is it other people's content? How does it work? It's a combination. It's, it's primarily, at this point, my content. But I, I have friends of Louie where I put up stuff like Howard Hall, my buddy's one of the best underwater cinematographers. So I'm going to curate the best of the best and create an opportunity for a lot of these films to find your audience. I mean, you mentioned like Paramount Plus and all these others. Look, there's some good content on there, and there's also a lot of negative content. Most storytelling in Hollywood. As I said earlier, it's based on conflict, based on fear, in order to grab your attention. So you're not going to find any horror films. You're not going to find any like action dramas. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find people killing each other. You're not going to find people using guns as a solution to solve a problem. Because I do feel, and we're going to see the truth of this in, in the near future, where you're going to find out that people that have been watching that kind of content not only does it like affect your mind and your perceptions and your, your worldview, 
It creates cortisol in your body. It creates disease. It shortens your life. Look how long it took to discover that smoking tobacco was killing hundreds and thousands of people, you know, with lung cancer. How long did it take for us to discover fast food is creating a diabetes epidemic and killing our children? And how long is it going to take for people to realize that watching thousands of murders before you're 20 years old is going to warp your worldview? It's toxic. And so I can't control the the world's media, but what I can do is open up a different place for them to go where you can watch positive imagery, not Pollyanna stuff. I'm talking about stuff that just celebrates life, that makes every cell in your body wake up and go, yeah, I get it. I'm with you. I want to move forward. I want to be alive. How can we not want to be alive? How can we not want to be healthy? How can we not want to be mindful, kind to each other and learn and be turned on? We definitely want to get turned on. And nature has invented beautiful mechanisms to turn you on. When I say turn you on, I hope your audience understands I'm not talking about drugs. I'm talking about making you feel alive, whether it's through music or visuals, or massage, or or aromatherapy, or surfing a big wave, whatever it is that excites you, that puts you in the moment, makes you present, that is what we all want to feel. And it's easy, again, to fall into that thing of fear, because we're hardwired to do it, unfortunately. But we have the power to choose what we eat, who we hang out with, what we're going to watch, what we're going to listen to, right? We have the power to choose. That's the greatest power on the planet, maybe. I once heard Oprah say in an interview that, and this is a recent interview, she said that she felt like she wasn't doing enough. She felt like there was so much more she could do. And I was just curious that as an accomplished documentary filmmaker yourself, what's your relationship with that like? And, and how are you defining success these days? It's a great question. I think that trying to do as much as I can, the Louis channel, I mean, I think it's the first OTT channel that means over the top, a streaming platform. It isn't like a phone app. You get it on your phone, but mm-hmm. the fact that I'm on Apple TV, Roku, all these devices where you can stream 4K imagery. Last night we had a launch party. We had over 5,000 people, you know, it was great. So, I don't know of any other individual that's ever done that before, which is pretty cool. So I'm doing the best I can. But in the interviews that I had, I had a bunch of young women. They were great. Gitanjali and and Shia Bastida. These are young women. And I asked them the questions about the environment and how do you get your generation, you know, to overcome the despair that it only would be logical when you're hearing that by the time they're 50, they're going to be like toast, you know? (laughs) So a lot of them said the same thing that I'm communicating. They want people to celebrate life. They want people to appreciate what we do have. You can't solve all of it, but what they're doing is they're solving small parts of it. You know, Gitanjali created this device that can measure lead in drinking water because of what was going on in Flint, Michigan. 
she tackled the idea of identification of lead in the water. She did not try to tackle how do you get rid of the lead in the water? How do you educate the people in the community and what to do in the politics? And she only worked on one part of it, which was to identify the lead in the water. And she made a point, and I thought I really it, it really touched me. Let's just handle those little small pieces. Like instead of Oprah saying that could do a lot more, you can't shoulder the entire world's burdens. You need to like tackle what you can do. Can you teach a class of children how to do regenerative agriculture? Giant thing you could do. You know, it's not going to change the entire world, but guess what? All of those things do add up. Can I plant a pollinator-friendly garden? Can I grow a tomato plant on my back porch, which gives me food and also gives the bee something to eat? These are all little tiny things we can do that add up to a giant movement. And that's what I think we're trying to do, the environmental movement, or I'm trying to create a movement around gratitude. Because if you're grateful for the little things in life, you naturally are going to become an eco-warrior. You're going to become a Jedi Knight. You're going to fight the good fight. But in order to fight the good fight, you got to be strong and peaceful inside. You have to have courage. You have to be resilient. You got to be strong. You got to get in shape. You can't go out there and, and fight a fight and be weak. And I think the stuff that you do, like with teaching people about yoga and everything. It's like, you got to heal yourself inside before you can heal the rest of the world. I think that's a great place to end it. Just wanted to acknowledge you, Louis, for having the courage to continue to put stuff out there and do it on your own and self-distribute and you know all the things that come with that, which I'm sure there's some risk involved. And you have to like mm-hmm. face that and, and, just, and just trust that, hey, it appeals to you. If it lights you up inside, then somebody else out there is going to be interested and excited about this. And I think that a lot of us could have a lot more of that in our lives. You know, instead of always worrying about what everybody else thinks and what conventional yeah. wisdom has to say, you have to put yourself out there. You have to take a leap of faith. You have to trust in something greater than yourself. And you are the walking, talking, living, breathing embodiment of that. Just like the plants that you that you film, there's an inherent trust in the ecosystem of life. And so thank you so much for modeling that for all of us. I appreciate that. I think trust and patience go kind of hand in hand Mm -hmm. in that respect. And I love the fact that, you know, what we're doing is we're able to build community. You've got a community that you're talking to right now. I'm building a community. Perhaps there's more of us than we think. And then if we can just cross-pollinate all these communities, which is sort of what I'm doing with, with the Louis channel. I mean, last night we had EarthDay.org was our like major kind of partner, but we've had spirituality and health. We have yoga groups, O Magazine, you know, all these different people. We're bringing that, we need to kind of coalesce. You know, the, the right knows how to get people to march in lockstep. People that are more progressive, we all have our own ideas, you know? Yeah. And we're not as organized, quote unquote, perhaps, but we all have the same you know, values. And then I think that it's great to recognize that we could be the movement that changes the world. Thank you, man. Looking you forward to meeting you in person at some point. All so. right. Same here. 
Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Louis Schwartzberg. So his new streaming platform, the Louis Channel, is now accessible at louischannel.tv. And there you can stream the film Gratitude Revealed, which I've seen and I love and I highly recommend, as well as you can download a study guide and an entire educational curriculum related to the film. So if you are a facilitator of any type, if you're a teacher, it's encouraged that you watch this film virtually in community so that you guys can learn together about the power of gratitude and For more inspiration, you also want to make sure to follow Louis on the socials. He's at Louis Schwartzberg. That's L-O-U-I-E-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-B-E-R-G. And you can also follow the handle Fantastic Fungi. And of course, I'll drop links to everything that we talked about in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archive of past interviews with other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose, such as the internet poet sensation Young Pueblo, filmmaker Ava DuVernay, motivational speaker Ed Milet, author Stephen Pressfield, and many, many more. You can also search interviews by subject matter if you just want to hear episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or creators or people who've overcome financial struggles or health challenges. You can get a list of all of those specific categories at lightwatkins.com slash show. And you can also watch these interviews on my YouTube channel. If you want to put a face to a story, just search Light Watkins Podcast on YouTube and you'll see the whole playlist. And if you don't already know, I put the raw, unedited version of every podcast audio in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you like to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of each episode, you can listen to all of that by joining thehappinessinsiders.com. And you'll also get access to my 108 day meditation challenge, which famously has an 80% completion rate, which means eight out of 10 people who start that challenge, complete the challenge all 108 days. It is probably the best way to get a meditation practice up and running. And then finally, to help me bring you the best guests possible, it would go a long way if you could take 10 seconds to rate the podcast. All you do is you look at your screen, you click on the name of the podcast, you scroll down past the seven previous episodes, you'll see five blank stars. And if you find these conversations inspirational, go ahead and click the star all the way on the right and you've left a five-star rating. And if you want to go the extra mile, which I always encourage people to do, leave a review. Just write one line which says what you love about the podcast or which episode you think a new listener should start with. And that goes further than you can probably imagine in terms of getting us higher in the search results and just helping other guests come onto the show and understanding that we're doing good work here. So, Thank you very much in advance for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. 
you'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.